Turn with me in your Bibles, or you can even look there on the insert that is included in your bulletin, to first Mark 11, 7 through 11, but our focus will be primarily on Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2. Jesus undoubtedly took many trips to Jerusalem during his life. In fact, we know that at a young age, he went to Jerusalem with his parents uh, to the temple during the Passover. So it's reasonable to think that in the 29 years before his public earthly ministry, uh, that he spent at least 29 of those days uh, making, a way, making his way to Jerusalem with his family, maybe more. But none of those trips, those entries into Jerusalem, are as significant as this trip that we consider today on Palm Sunday, shown to us in Mark 11. For this is a trip that bears with it the most important act that has ever occurred, the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a mission, and he will fulfill his mission just a few days after this entry into Jerusalem. Now, every year we study this passage in some way, shape, or form. This year, I would like us to consider the passage once again, and then consider what is our response? How should we respond to this sacrifice of Christ, the sacrifice? Hear God's word, Mark 11, verse 7 through 11. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful once again, particularly at this time of the year when we have special emphasis on the week of our Lord's passion leading to the cross and to his resurrection. Lord, we especially at this time want to consider the sacrifice of Christ for us, but most immediately, Lord, how we should then live. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us this morning by your word. Help us to go from this place changed, that we might bring glory to you in this world. We thank you for this opportunity, for the power to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. It is certainly a wonderful picture, the irony of God that he would enter Jerusalem for the final time, not on a war horse, you know, as a conquering king, but rather on a donkey, a foal of a donkey, a colt. Really, we're talking about a peaceful animal. And Jesus the king would come in, and there were certainly mixed motivations among those people who were cheering him on, but there is definitely a remnant there that understood who Jesus was and what he was coming to do. And so he enters the city of Jerusalem that final time to pay the price for my sin, for your sin. 
you know, say it personally. For Tony's sin, he rode in to Jerusalem. For your personal sin, he rode in to Jerusalem that last time. In fact, of all the trips ever made ever anywhere, this may be the trip that was most important in all the world's history. And certainly, it's a sacrifice that has totally transformed all of us who call upon the name of Christ. Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final time in order to be the sacrifice for our sins. Let us then respond in the only way we should, committing ourselves as living sacrifices to him. He's the ultimate sacrifice. Now we respond not with dead sacrifices as of old, but with ourselves as living sacrifices. We have before us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, the right response to correctly understanding, grasping, and totally and utterly living in the truth of Christ's life for our life. God's sacrifice is the basis now for our sacrifice, our lives. And I want to tell you from the onset, before we look at this, that I'm not going to ask you today, and the Bible doesn't ask us today, to just give up stuff just for the sake of giving something up, or to lay your life down just because you now have to live some kind of monastic life in response to what God has done. You know, some kind of suffering we have to undergo now because of what Jesus has done. That is not the biblical understanding of a living sacrifice, you and I, in Christ. In fact, it's a joyful, wonderful opportunity we have in response, saying thank you to God for his sacrifice to now make ourselves a living sacrifice. He had to die as a sacrifice so that we could live unto him for his glory. And so we see that God's sacrifice, his own sacrifice, is the basis for our sacrifice. This is an important foundation for us to understand why we live the way we live. Motivation is so important, and oftentimes people just go about their business thinking, I'm just supposed to do this. Well, this is why we're supposed to do this. Look at verse 1 of Romans 12. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We have first a reference to God's gracious plan of salvation in the first part of verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. First it says, I appeal to you. That is, I urge you. I petition you. I call you. Please hear what I am going to say. I appeal to you, therefore, and the therefore is therefore a reason. It's referring to the 11 chapters that proceed in Romans, particularly chapters 9 through 11, and really the whole plan of God's salvation, which the book of Romans, in unique form in the biblical text, lays out the totality of what God has done for us in Christ. In fact, that's the plan of salvation that is referred to when it says, by the mercies of God. You see, mercies is in the plural form. The manifold mercies of God. It doesn't stop with just one mercy. They're new every morning. But consider for a moment the plan of salvation that Romans lays out that Romans 12 is now referring back to. Now, Romans is one of the most logically laid out plans of the Christian faith or treatises of the Christian faith uh, that is existent in the Bible. Now, you can look at Ephesians and Galatians. You can even look at Isaiah and see it laid out. But when you're reading Romans, Romans is written clearly as to be the, the end all of arguments. It's still used today to show the legality of what Jesus did for us, paying for our sins. But if you consider, this is really laying out the gracious plan of salvation to which Romans 12.1 refers. And it's important for us to recognize. Romans starts out by laying out the bad news of God's wrath for our sin. When you read Romans 1 and 2, you see clearly how we're given over to our sinfulness. 
Man's dead in this, result, in this light, and he's due God's right judgment. God's sure judgment will be poured out on, on sin in those who are sinners. That's what Romans says so clearly. But the righteousness of God is really at, at stake here, and it's upheld as God punishes sin. So God's righteousness and his justice and, and his integrity is upheld when he pours out wrath on sin. That would be bad news if it weren't for the fact that God, by the good pleasure of his will, chooses some to rescue from this, but he can't just do it without any cost. It has to be paid for, the sin, or his righteousness would be assailed. And so he sends his son, the righteous one, and agrees to give some to the son, who in turn agrees to sacrifice himself for them so that he could present them back to the Father as righteous. So God's righteousness is never violated because of Christ's work on the cross for us. That's why we can go to heaven, because of what God has done in Christ, giving his righteousness to us. Romans lays this out really more clearly than any other book in Scripture. It's sometimes called the freedom letter because it's a declaration of our freedom from the power and penalty of sin. In Romans 8, it lays out clearly, there is therefore now no condemnation. And mind you, it doesn't say anything about what you and I are bringing to the table. It's talking about what God has done for us. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he sanctified. And those, it's all what he has done for us. And Romans lays this legal case out so we understand very clearly it's all of God's grace, it's all of his compassion, it's all of his mercy that any of us would be saved. It leaves no room for you to pull the switch, you to be the determiner or the sovereign one. It's all of God's mercy. And that's why he says in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Those are the embodiment, those statements of the doctrines of grace. Not just one doctrine of grace, every doctrine is a doctrine of grace, because it's about God, his sovereignty, his glory, his righteousness upheld. And so this is what is in the mind of Paul in Romans 12, when he comes, says, comes and says, I appeal to you, therefore, based on the doctrines of grace based on the mercies, the manifold mercies of God. And by the way, it's not just the, the grace that I showed, showed to you when I moved you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's, that's important grace. It's probably the most important grace. But I'm talking about the grace, too, that I continue to pour on you, that your lungs would fill up with air and you would still breathe, that your heart's still beating, that you still have food to eat, that the rain still falls, and on and on and on. And every morning, the sun still rises mercies of God, the compassion of God, the manifold grace and goodness and kindness of God. It's on that basis that I appeal to you, therefore, the apostle says, by the mercies of God to do what? To present yourself as a living sacrifice. Now, before we consider the sacrifice and what it means, we've understood the gracious plan of God's salvation as the book of Romans lays it out leading up to this point and the rest of the New Testament affirms and the Old Testament for that matter as well. But we also want to consider personally and particularly the events of Palm Sunday and how they relate to Christ's redeeming work. If you remember Jesus coming in, please see this as much more than just a simple story that we have opportunity to have our kids participate in a, in a certain programmatic aspect of the service. That's important. It's wonderful. It teaches them. But it's more than just that. It's an actual historical event that happened that's among, among all the historical events one of the most important, where Jesus fulfills prophecy by taking himself, putting himself on this colt and making his way into Jerusalem, fulfilling centuries-old prophecy about how the Messiah would come and pay for the sins of his people. So his particular personal redeeming work is pictured at the beginning of this week in Palm Sunday. 
Now, every Sunday's Resurrection Sunday. I hope we realize that. But I think it's helpful to have one week like this to really think about what it was that God did in Christ. Starting with Palm Sunday when he makes his way into Jerusalem, followed by all the events of the Passion Week that he goes through for us, and then culminates with the Lord's Supper, and then being arrested, and then going uh, to the cross, dying, but then rising again, thinking of this again in a new and fresh way over the course of this week. His plan of salvation that's so beautifully laid out in, in Romans comes down to this personal act of Jesus Christ when he takes up the mantle of God's wrath and allows it to be put on himself for us. It starts when he goes into Jerusalem like this. He enters to pay the price that we could not pay to be the sacrifice for our sins. And what is so vivid here, as you can imagine, this is the Passover meal. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem at the very same time that everybody is coming from all over the place to bring their sacrifices. So you as a head of a household would come with your lamb or as an individual with your lamb that you had raised all that year or for a couple years, keeping it separate from the other lambs because it has to be without blemish. And every year you make this trek for miles in some cases. So thousands and thousands of people are coming to Jerusalem to make their sacrifice in the Day of Atonement, during the Passover, and they're coming in. And at the same time that all these lambs are coming in, thousands of them, the noise of all the lambs coming in at that time, can you imagine the thousands of them coming? All these sacrifices, and here's Jesus entering Jerusalem at the same time to be the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. In the midst of the smell, the commotion, the sound of hungry lambs, Jesus on the donkey with people saying, Hosanna. This is what Hebrews so wonderfully captures as we have been studying when it says in Hebrews 10, 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You know, the picture of trekking to Jerusalem and bringing a lamb every year and just the redundancy and the, the never-endingness of it and to have Jesus entering knowing maybe he's the only one or just a few people understood rightly that this would end all of that with his one sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 4, the blood of bulls and goats is impossible for them to take away sins. But just eight verses later in Hebrews 10, 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, ending that need for a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are in leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Are you in Christ today? I mean, is a 100% of your trust and confidence in Christ as your sacrifice for your sins? Do you believe that his sacrifice is sufficient for your sins, no matter what they are? If so, Christ's redeeming work has its effect in calling us to be living sacrifices. We've seen the creedal aspect of uh, the truth, that is what is true. Now what to do, the conduct aspect, comes in verse 2. Creed in verse 1, conduct in verse 2. Really the second part of verse 1 into verse 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. <clears throat> do not be conformed to this world, in verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now for a moment, look at that phrase in the, first, in the second part of verse 1. <coughs> to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So what does this mean, presenting your bodies? It means exactly what it says, to present your physical body to the Lord. Now, it means more than that, of course, but don't negate the idea that your physical body 
is a way of wit in which it witnesses to the truth that's inside of you by what you do with yourself. So present yourself, your whole self, to God. The part that shows really what is true in our hearts is our body and by what we do and what we choose to do. You know, there are many people that have orthodox thoughts in their minds, and they say orthodox or right things, but their actions don't mirror it at all. That would evidence that it's not really true what they're saying, because it's not shown out in their bodies and what they do, how they live. To present your body to the Lord as a living sacrifice means visibly displaying evidence that our lives are built on his mercy and grace. The second part of verse 1 again. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are to be a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God. And we'll consider a holy and acceptable sacrifice in a moment. But first, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, it says, is an, a spiritual act of worship, or is your spiritual worship. This refers to something that's different than just only an external rite. Now, many of you grew up in very formal settings. We have a formal church setting ourselves. And it's possible, it's possible in any way to, to fake it, but there's that external right aspect where you could come and just check off the spots and look all right on the outside but really have no internal change. That's a danger for sure of any form. But what this is calling us to is it's speaking to our heart as we know that God knows our hearts. It's saying, give your spiritual act of worship. Just don't give yourself as, a, as an outward offering that people might see and say, oh boy, that person's holy, but rather really give yourself so that when God looks at you, it's clear between you and God that you are genuinely saying, Lord, thank you for what you've done for me in Christ. I want my life to be yours. I want to give my life as a living sacrifice to you. That's spiritual worship, real worship, the kind of worship that unites what is in your heart with what your actions are and what you really mean to do. This is uh, what is referred to earlier in Romans, in Romans 6, 12 and 13, where Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. It says this, But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That beautiful picture of someone being uh, raised again from a resurrection. They don't just run off. If you were raised again, you just run off and try to find something to do. You want to know who raised you. And you look to the one who raised you and say, what can I do? That's what's true in your life if you've been born again. You don't raise to run, run off and do your own thing. You're raised to do what he wants you to do now. He saved you. He raised you for a living, to do something according to his will for his glory. That's the purpose he has for your life. 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God this side of the cross? No more blood of bulls and goats. Your life, that's what it is. Not a part of your life, not, Lord, I'll give you this activity, all of your life. That's what's an appropriate spiritual sacrifice. In fact, if you're only giving portion of it, the fact that you're holding back something from God is actually polluting the part you're actually giving. It's like Ananias and Sapphira when they gave part of what they got. It's all of God's. Give it all to him, your life. Who can take better care of you, him or your plans for it? Give it all to God and be honest where you're holding back. You're raised to life. Now ask the one who raised you, how is it? that I can live for you. And the text gives us two very important 
uh, indicators. We should have, be a holy sacrifice and an acceptable sacrifice. If you look at verse 2, you'll see how these break down. Verse 1 says, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then it, then it explains this a bit in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. That has to do with holiness, if you see that there. Conformity to the world means we're not being separate or set apart, but we're looking just like the rest of the unredeemed world, or the present age, literally. So don't be conformed to this world. It has to do with holiness. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That has to do with what's acceptable to God. We're, by the way, we all have to be transformed in mind. Your natural mind does not think the thoughts of God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He has to give us right thoughts. That only comes as he reveals to us his will. And what's the primary way he reveals his will? The word of God. The spirit of God. In the context of the people of God. That's how he reveals what's acceptable. So transformation occurs by the word of God, applied to the people of God, by the spirit of God, in the context of the people of God. And holiness happens as we refuse to be conformed to the world. Now, let's consider those two things and be very blunt because life's too short to beat around the bush. And you know I don't like to beat around the bush. Holiness, do not conform to this world, the present age. This has to do with resisting conformity. And conformity is as simple as this. You get that little Play-Doh mold that you, I know parents, you know, I love being a parent of kids this age because I could play with this stuff and, yeah, I'm playing with my kids. But it's fun to play with this stuff. I mean, it's just the truth. I like to play with Legos all day. Anyways, I jam the Play-Doh into the mold. Just thought I'd share. I play the, jam the Play-Doh into the mold, and you take the mold off, and it looks exactly like what the mold is. Well, so often, people, we try to jam ourselves. We kill ourselves to jam ourselves into the mold of society and culture without ever really analyzing whether this is a godly society or culture we're jamming ourselves into. And good, wonderful Christian people fall into this. I'm not talking about the one who's honestly wondering, should I go to the world or should I go? No, the people that... Us, you know, who are living in this world, want to do what God wants us to do. But even in the Christian culture, we somehow look more like the world's culture, and we just give in to things that aren't sinful on their own. But because we spend so much time trying to conform, we're no longer following God's calling on our lives. And we're not looking different. We're not looking uh, as people that can draw people's attention to God. Think of all the ways this happens for adults. And I totally and utterly include myself in this. This is not telling you what you're having a problem with. It's the reality of the temptations of my own heart. To do what other people do. To kind of look what other people, the way other people look. To even wear what other people wear. To have the things that other people have. Without consideration of God's particular will for me. It's not so bad that any of those things, brothers and sisters, but God has called us individually to different things. And if we're only ever pursuing things because other people are doing it without honestly asking, is this the will of God, this good and acceptable will for me, we're going to consistently run away from God. Even though it won't be this illicit sin, you know, the big ones, that kind of conformity, don't fall into this or that. I'm not talking about that. And I don't think the text means that. It means conformity to the spirit of the age, which simply focuses on the temporary rather than the eternal. And we get focused on things. We see, you know what? That family, they can have two new cars. There's no reason why I can't have them. And yes, it's going to cost more to make those payments. And it's going to stretch me. I won't be able to give the Lord's work like that. I'm going to have to work more to do it. But you know what? Everyone here has one or has two. So I've got to do it. You know, that person's clothes, you know, they, they get new clothes every so often. They get new furniture. I, we've got to do that too. To fit in, we've got to do it. Now, no one says it out loud. Because we realize how unspiritual it sounds. But we strive after those things and do exactly that. We, we take a, a survey of what in the neighborhood's going on, and we do that. 
One that I've been tempted with since my children have gotten older is the activity level that our children are. Now, I remember when I was a kid, I really didn't do that many things. I played a lot more outside than my kids do. I just did more things that required my imagination. Now, the temptation for me personally is to have them in so many things. Why? Because everyone else has their kids in those things, and my kid's going to be behind if they're not playing soccer, baseball, basketball, all at the same time. And I know this is a temptation for this culture. And I would submit to you that that can become a sinful thing when we are conformed more to the culture or the society rather than saying, what is most healthy for the discipleship process of myself and my children for the glory of God? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Got to have a bigger house. Got to have newer clothes. Got to conform to different social norms. Even when it relates to our parenting. And it can be most difficult when it happens in a society of basically like-minded people that are like-minded in godly ways, but they just get off the trail of what's, so, what's really important. If my competitor or my coworker never takes a day off, I can't either. I, I shouldn't. And we conform and we conform. I remember working in a youth group where this one kid in the youth group came in with a, a mohawk haircut, which, by the way, I'm not morally opposed to a mohawk. I just could never grow one myself, so maybe that's why I speak of this particular situation. Comes in with a huge mohawk, and I asked him, why'd you get, your mo why'd you get a mohawk? And his parents weren't really happy. I just don't want to be like everyone else. I'm tired of being with you know, everyone. I want to stand out. I want to be different. I don't want to conform. He even used the word conform. And I visited his school towards the end of the summer when I was doing this internship. And I, all I had to do was look in the, in the lunch room when they just started school. I could see 15 or 20 Mohawks sitting in the corner. That's conformity. Okay, even when we think we're not conforming, we're really trying to get with a group. Because bottom line, we care about being accepted. And I don't discount this reality. But let us, please, people of God, be transformed by the renewal of our minds to do what is good and acceptable for God and not conform for the sake of conformity. We're called to something much greater than this, to give ourselves as a living sacrifice to Jesus, not to the world. The world will chew us up and spit us out in the end. Young people, I want to speak specifically to you about pressures to conform. It hits you harder than anyone because of the particular state of life you are in and how you're growing and how all these pressures are confronting you to align with this or that way of thinking, this or that way of acting. You know, everyone on MTV is doing it a certain way, so maybe this is how I ought to conduct myself in dating relationships. See how they're doing it on Friends? See how they're doing it on this show or that show? And my parents are just kind of out of touch. They didn't go through this when they, when they were younger. Newsflash, they did. It's, just, it's, it's different, we agree, it's different. It's not exactly the same as what you dealt with, but the pressure to conform has always been the case. And those of you young people who make a decision to be renewed in the, by the transform, transforming of your mind according to the good and acceptable will of God, you will be the people that the culture will look to in the future as leaders. But if you just conform, you're just taking your place with everyone else, and there's nothing special about that. God calls us to give ourselves as living sacrifices. What a world we would have if every young person would just give themselves to Christ in this way. Watch how he would transform a whole generation. You know, there have been many, many studies done on this subject. I've even conducted games in youth group before that show this trend. But here's one particular study that emphasizes how much we desire to be accepted and to conform. Uh, a psychologist a few years ago named Ruth Berenda and her associates carried out an interesting experiment with teenagers designed to show how a person handled group peer pressure. Listen how the study reads. The plan was simple. They brought groups of 10 adolescents into a room for a test. Subsequently, each group of 10 was instructed to raise their hands when the teacher pointed to the longest line in three separate charts. 
What one person in the group did not know was that the nine others in the room had been instructed ahead of time to vote for the second longest line, regardless of the, inst the instructions they heard. They were all together in the group. Uh, uh, once they were all together in the group, the nine were not to vote for the longest line, but rather vote for the next to the longest line. The experiment began with nine teenagers voting for the wrong line. The stooge, the person who didn't know, would typically glance around, frown in confusion, and slip his hand up with the rest of the group. If you don't believe this will happen, I've seen it happen many times in contexts like this, with this kind of an experiment. The instructions were repeated and the next card was raised. Time after time, the self-conscious stooge would sit there staying, uh, saying a short line is longer than a long line simply because he had lacked the courage to challenge the group. This remarkable conformity occurred in about 75% of the cases and was true of small children and high school students as well. Who will stand up and say what's true? That's what the world needs. The world doesn't need another nine people raising their hand to what's wrong. That's what we see happening. Where is that getting us as a culture? Well, Christians have to be the one to stop raising their hands. Be not conformed is what the call is. And this is all in light of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Be not conformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern. This is the second part. By testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Acceptable. That's what we want. We want holiness. That is, we're not trans, uh, conformed to the world. Acceptability. That is, we're transformed by biblical thinking. That's, what transfer, that's where transformation happens. The only way it happens. Doesn't happen on a special retreat. Doesn't happen by medication you take or by a diet you're on. Transformation truly happens when the Word of God is applied in your life. That's how it occurs. Don't be a conformist, but a transformist. And by the way, in the big picture, transformation in a culture and a society happens when individual people are given over to the Spirit of God by the Word of God, and that spreads to their families, it spreads to their church, it spreads to their schools, their occupations, their city, their state, their country. And if you don't believe it can't happen, then you're not reading Christ's commission. You're not reading what he is do doing now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he does so by personal transformation, boring itself, bearing itself out in corporate transformation. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Transform comes from the word metamorphy, which you can tell comes uh, is the word that we have derived metamorphosis uh, have, have come up with our word metamorphosis that is a process of change it's the same word actually here that's used when Jesus is transfigured in the transfiguration the same word is used here applying the transformation of our minds a spiritual transformation is an outward expression from which from uh, what springs from within that outward evidence of what's happening inside now this is a very important phrase testing by testing you may discern what the will of god is let's just be very clear here a lot of what you see today that is is shown as a way to tell god's will is not defined by what the bible says as testing and to discern the will of god testing to discern means searching wrestling with go, it, taking time to make a decision when decisions just come to us like people will say and this is always uh, uh, a red flag uh, god's just given me peace and then you analyze, it just means I haven't done anything more than just kind of waited on a feeling to make a decision. That's not what's said here. By testing, you may discern what the will of God is. Well, if we agree that the scripture reveals itself to be God's mode of revelation, then we have to search it and wrestle with it and study it 
And that's a lifelong pursuit, brothers and sisters. It's not like you just all of a sudden become a believer, pick up your Bible, and I have to make a decision and flip to it, and it's going to have it. It's not like that. It has to do with uh, washing your mind in the water of the Word, and that takes time. And then you start thinking in a different way. Your mind becomes transformed. You start uh, thinking with a new set of eyes and a new perspective. And you are now more and more able as you grow to wrestle with, to test, to discern God's will when decisions come your way. What are the steps that we should take then in discerning God's will, his good and acceptable and perfect will. Let me just give you four steps that I think all believers should consider when they're about to make a big decision. And remind, and I'm, I'm taking this pause to do this because when we talk about a living sacrifice and giving your life, that is, cannot be separated from every decision you make because every decision you make relates to whether you're a sacrifice for God or not. So start first, first and foremost, with the scriptures. Search the scriptures, number one. How do I discern God's will? I've got to go to his word, and I have to search it. And not with a magical sense of, like I said, flip the page and there's his answer, but rather study the basic principles of his word so that you can automatically, automatically rule out certain answers to your question because they're sinful. You know, Lord, I want to be rich. Well, that's a sinful desire to just want to be rich. Now, I want to help people. That may be manifested in that way, but I want to be this or I want to be... You know, those are things you can see immediately in Scripture are sinful ways to, to advance. And if you can't get the direct answer by principle, pour over it and the Lord will use his word to transform your mind so that you are built up in wisdom. So the first thing is you search the Scriptures for an explicit answer. If there's not an explicit one, you continue to pour over it as God's spirit changes you to think in terms uh, the terms that God would have you to think in. And we know this is true of the scriptures because in 2 Timothy it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, the man, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And all these things we could say, all scripture is breathed out and profitable for decision making, can't we? That's the point. But we also have to go to the Lord in prayer. Things won't always be immediate. So pour yourself out to God about the matter. Take time to do this. Trust in him at all times, it says in Psalm 62. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Just pray that you would honor God in your decision, whatever it is. Search his word and pray. Oftentimes, brothers and sisters, very honestly, people stop there, though. That's not the totality of how we discern God's will. And what I mean by this is well-meaning brother, well-meaning sister, I've done it myself will have in their mind already made up what they're going to do decision-wise. Then they go and tell you when they want your counsel, right? They go and say, I prayed about it. I've read the, I've read the Bible. And so what is the person that's hearing this supposed to say then? Oh, you read your Bible and you prayed. Go do it. You know, that's what we want them to say when we say it. I mean, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many people, husband and wife now, Husband makes a decision, decides we're going to do this, and you kind of rashly do it. Now, you're not going to say it out loud because you're too spiritual to, recognize, to, to do that, but you go to your wife and say, you know, I've been praying about this, and maybe you have. I'm not saying you haven't. I've prayed about this, and, and I've, you know, I've been studying the Bible about it, and uh, I think we need to do this. Now, wives, the first thing you got to do is, oh, really, honey, show me where you found, where is that in the scripture? You've been reading the Bible on that. Ask very nicely about that, or husbands, ask your wife. Let, let's, let's study the scripture together on it, see where that is. Now, normally what you'll find is, that's where the conversation breaks down a bit because it just means I've been generally reading the Bible and therefore I'm not knocking it, brothers and sisters. I'm just saying that that's not truly looking for counsel at that point and for the will of God. That's saying I'm finding the Bible uh, to be something that will uphold what I want to do and my desire. And then, and then praying about it kind of trumps, you know, anyone questioning your spirituality because, you know, you prayed about it. Okay, let's be honest. Discerning and searching for God's will is a wrestling match. It doesn't just stop with 
checking the scriptures out and praying, it involves also God giving you supernatural wisdom and you responding then to conviction. And so that's the third thing I would submit to you, wisdom given by God's spirit. Don't ignore it. You know, what I mean is, is when you're checked in your spirit, you've done these things, you've read the word, you have prayed about it, and there's a sense you have of unrest, let's call it a lack of peace. I'm not saying make a decision yet, just hold off on the decision at that point if something's not right. If there's a sense there that is not right, it could be the Holy Spirit. It may not be, but it could be, so caution at that point. And finally, in part of this whole picture, is probably the most important next to the first step, Get godly counsel from mature believers. I don't mean go to the person at work who's not a believer and ask them what they think of this. Go to the mature believer, uh, one of your elders, one of your, someone that you know is a mature believer pursuing the same things. And then run your ideas by them. And I don't mean just in the marriage relationship because we're one flesh with our wives, husbands and wives and wives and husbands. And it's possible to be united sinfully in a decision we want to make. So it's important to take what you decide, even in that case, if we're pursuing the good and acceptable will before the Lord, and bring that to someone who will give you godly counsel as a couple. And then present the issue to them. More than one person, I would even suggest. And so with the combination of searching the scriptures, praying, uh, answering those, those convictions of the Spirit by pausing, and also seeking counsel from people who will guide you according to God's word, if you do those things you will be certainly living out the testing and the discernment that is called to discover the will of God. I wish it were so that we weren't tainted by sin and we could look at the Bible every time and just know exactly what we're supposed to do. But the fact is sin has so made its way into all of our lives that we need the assistance of God's spirit. We need God's people who care about us and are looking out for us to keep us from things that may not, may not be profitable, not just for us, but for the glory of God. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to the advice of others. Brothers and sisters, these are just a few of the, the points in which we can practically live out this practice of testing. You may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Discerning God's will will help you make decisions that bolster the fact that you are living sacrifice before the Lord. That is what he has called us to do. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem to be the sacrifice should evoke in your minds a question of, God, how can I say thank you for what Jesus has done? As Jesus descended upon Jerusalem to be the sacrifice for our sins, he wasn't just passive, though. He came and he took our lives to be his own. He bought us with a price, a high price of his blood. So we don't have, uh, we don't have the freedom, thankfully, to just say, I'm going to do what I want to do. We're bought with a price Calvin, towards uh, the end of his first ministry in Geneva, received all sorts of persecution, was actually run out of Geneva. Two years later, they called him to minister there again. And several of his friends said, don't go back. They chew you up and spit you out there in Geneva. Don't go there. And he realized that God's call was upon him. And this is how he responded to God's calling in his life. He could have gone everywhere, anywhere. He was John Calvin. But he went back to Geneva after this layoff. And this is what he wrote to his good friend. He said, we are not our own. Therefore, let not our reason nor our will sway our plans and deeds. We are not our, we are not our own. Let us therefore not set, set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own insofar as we can. Let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we belong to God. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. 
We belong to God. Let his wisdom and his will therefore rule our actions. We belong to God. Let all the parts of our lives accordingly strive towards him as our only lawful goal. Brothers and sisters, I hope you were encouraged as you consider the passion of our Lord this week to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity as to how we should order our lives, how we should live out our being living sacrifices. Lord, there are many decisions that confront my brothers and sisters here gathered today and confront me. Lord, help us to seek your word, to lift these requests before you, to trust in your spirit's guidance, and ultimately, Lord, see confirmation as other believers help us with perspective that should be God-honoring. Lord, we pray these things so that we can rightly say thank you to you for what you have done for us on the cross. Lord, this week, I pray for a special focus uh, to be upon the sacrifice for our sins paid by Jesus. Help each of us grow in our love and appreciation for our wonderful Savior. And Lord, may our lives be different as a result of contemplating these things this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond uh, together and also prepare hearts for the Lord's Supper.